Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is the weekend edition of Comfort's Corner, where we take an inside look at what's happening in and around the transit industry as it relates to the COVID-19 crisis and the pandemic that is fast now unfolded across the transit industry and given a gut punch to transit systems around the world with ridership declines of 50 to 90%, routes adjusted, rear door boarding, fares waived, cleaning ramped up, $25 billion of CARES Act funding uh, being split up now among transit agencies, FAQs on the FTA website explaining how, and then the rebound, now mask required uh, on a lot of services, down mask not required, uh, then fares required, uh, then fares not required, now fares back required, validators put in. This is the changes that are happening as we rapidly uh, unfold this, uh, this pandemic across the industry. Today, we've got a great show for you. Uh, we've got David Zipper as our newsmaker interview. It's a longer interview, uh, but I think you'll really enjoy it. David is one of the bright minds in our industry uh, and is a visiting fellow at the um, Harvard Kennedy School of Government and gives us his insight as to what this really means for our transit industry going forward. Also, I'm excited to have uh, my good friend, Christian Kent. Uh, Christian wrote a chapter in my book, The Future of Public Transportation, and uh, he reads from it today at the latter end of this program. I think you'll really enjoy it um, as we look at uh, the transit industry as it's now kind of peaked in a lot of places and we're starting to see the trend moving down. This is April 24th, 25th, 26th, the weekend edition of Comfort's Corner. So, you know, I was, uh, I've was i been doing a lot of... Um, podcasts and webinars over the last two weeks from, you know, CUDA, the Canadian Urban Transit Association, to TripSpark, a sister company of ours, to Trapeze, just did another one of those yesterday, and we'll have another one coming up. Now I've got one planning for UITP in Australia. They're interested in me doing a nationwide webinar there for their transit providers. And I was putting together a PowerPoint slideshow for that, and I was looking at what I said in the book, The Future of Public Transportation, what I thought the 20... 20 uh, mobility trends would be. And you know what? They're all the same. Uh, this book is future-proof, I think. And uh, here they are. Look, I've got, here are the five trends in my book that I talk about headed into 2020. Uh, microtransit, I'm going to talk to you about that in just a minute, how microtransit's really picked up during this age of COVID. Technology, I mean, come on, that's the biggest trend that it's happening. People are figuring out that they can use their technology uh, even more to serve the needs of the public. For instance, not having all the reservationists in a call center for a paratransit center, but instead uh, you need to have people do their bookings using online booking tools and portal-based uh, booking tools and all the new technology that people have had to use to change their bus routes and change the driver schedules and uh, reach out to the public via Twitter and, and um, calls out to the public on things. So Technology has been one of the biggest trends that has helped transit agencies uh, manage through COVID-19. I just did a, a webinar with a bunch of CEOs, including Lauren Skyver and, and uh, Sam from Sam Sargent from uh, down in Austin, Texas, and the, the GM of Whatcom Transportation. And they were all talking about technology helping them get through this. What's the other big trend I talked about in the book? Zero fares. And of course, that is the number one long-lasting trend, I think, out of this will be the death of the fare box and people either going cashless or zero. Zero emission buses. If you look at uh, Mass Transit Magazine today, there are two or three articles about people moving forward zero emission buses, uh, even in this era of COVID, because now more than ever, people can see the environment being cleaned as a result of cars not traveling. And it just reiterates the importance 
difference in moving our buses to zero emission fuels. And finally, BRT, bus lanes, congestion charges, all the kind of things that are going to uh, reduce the friction on transit, all still very relevant. So I just thought that was interesting uh, that some of the long-term trends are um, are just what was expected and even a big uh, you know, macro change like this isn't going to change a lot of that. And we, we talked some about that to David Zipper later in our Newsmaker interview too. Pete Stark is, uh, was the general manager, is the general manager of Whatcom Transit. And he was telling us uh, that, you know, the Earth Day being this week, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, uh, all again ties into uh, the cleanliness requirements that people are starting to move forward with their transit systems. Hey, speaking of uh, these roundtables that Peter and Elliot Carey and Sam Sargent were on, I've got another one coming up uh, this coming week, and uh, James McDonald will be my guest. He's the director of Saskatoon Transit. Just talked with him for about a half hour yesterday. This is going to be a live uh, webinar across the nation for folks to listen to, Tuesday, April 28th, from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. James McDonald, Jim McDonald, the head of Saskatoon Transit in Canada will be there. He's going to be talking about technology and how he has used technology to better uh, cope with the different pressures that are on his transit system. We also got a whole host of executives from my company, Trapeze, who are going to be on this final webinar talking about um, using your technology that you currently have, your technology stack, and what else, and evaluating your technology stack to see is there other things you need and what are we working on for the future. Some of the inside look, we'll have Steve Sawyer, the general manager of Trapeze, Roger Helmy, our chief of product, Alex Nee, our chief technology officer, who talk about artificial intelligence and some of the ways that we're using that to develop brand new technology products. Jeff Moore, uh, our, our vice president of sales for the company will kind of go through and describe the whole picture of what Trapeze is doing big, uh, big series wise. Teresa Domingo, who is our senior vice president of operations, will talk about uh, the importance of what's happening right now and how our software systems are being used right now. And even um, new tools and technologies that maybe you weren't aware that you already have in your existing software. And then Travis Nepper, our director of new product initiatives will uh, outline a new program we have in place to have customers work with us to help develop tomorrow's technology. It's going to be an amazing show. Um, one of the best, uh, I think, that we've done, and it'll be this Tuesday, April 28th, 2 to 4 p.m. If you haven't registered yet, it's free. You can just go to trapezegroup.com and register. I think you'll enjoy that. A couple of headline news pieces that I thought were uh, interesting. The House Transportation Infrastructure Committee here in the United States from the House of Representatives hosted a bipartisan tweet storm. Have you ever heard of that? A tweet storm. And it garnered a lot of support from individuals and industries across uh, the country. And they used a hashtag to those who keep us moving. And basically, they highlighted the individuals who've been essential in keeping the economy running from the transportation industry, both aviation and transit. Uh, and there was uh, members of Congress chimed in, including the chair, Representative Peter DeFazio, and the ranking member, Senator, uh, Representative Sam Graves, who thanked the workers in sectors that included transit, aviation, maritime, and railroads. It's nice. They uh, came up with the money for us. We really appreciate that, the $25 billion. And now they're just remembering that the new heroes in American society are those who have who are the bus drivers, the cleaners, the operators, the train operators, the, uh, those who are in the front lines of making our industry, uh, making our country and our economy move forward. And along those same lines, I wanted to close out on an interesting tidbit I picked up uh, out of Washington, D.C., right next to where I live, and how that um, the government of Washington, D.C., and I'll actually be speaking to uh, the 
25 of the top executives of the Department of Transportation in D.C. Um, this morning on Friday uh, as a guest on their weekly uh, staff meeting to talk about trends. And if you're interested in me helping, you know, be a guest speaker at your transit agency staff meeting, a lot of folks are doing these online now once a week. I'm happy to do that. No charge. Just drop in and talk about transit trends, what's happening, answer questions. Just let me know. Email me at paul.comfort at trapezegroup.com. I can drop in right to your meeting and drop out when you don't want me there. It's easy to do We're using Zoom or Microsoft Teams. But one of the interesting things that Bowser administration, she's the mayor of Washington, D.C., has done, is she's launched a service with uh, VIA, the microtransit company, uh, to provide affordable on-demand transportation for essential healthcare workers of several hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and it's very interesting what they've done. Basically, they're providing exclusive rides uh, through this microtransit app to workers to and from their homes after 9 p.m., and uh, they've expanded this now. And healthcare workers pay a $3 flat rate fare for rides between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., a time frame traditionally with limited public transit options that have been reduced further during the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, um, basically, you know, you just go on your you go on your app, and you can hail one of these 11 high capacity vehicles, and uh, this enables multiple riders to seamlessly share a vehicle. A maximum of three healthcare workers per vehicle is all that's allowed, even though they carry more, to allow for proper social distancing. And it directs, uh, the app will direct passengers to a nearby corner for pickup, allowing for quick and efficient shared rides without lengthy detours, fixed routes, or schedules. And um, they're doing this, uh, VIA is doing this around the, around the world, a number of places it looks like, and also to bring goods and pharmaceuticals and services to people, as well as this unique idea. And I've seen that some uh, transit agencies have repurposed their paratransit vehicles that normally would just be for ADA passengers and allowing them to be more of a creative microtransit approach, kind of like Ride Casey Freedom in Kansas City that Robbie had Robbie Mackinnon put together down there where first it was just for people with disabilities and then they expanded it to the public. It's basically, you know, a ride share vehicle um, that you choose with an app and it can be taken, you can take people anywhere and it may help areas. And I think it may be one of the long-term trends uh, for lower ridership hours like that. Instead of putting in fixed routes that serve areas with just a handful of customers, you may move to more of this um, personalized service. And I just thought that was interesting that Washington DC had done that. I think it's an interesting move and it could be a um, kind of a, a prophetic move on what will come out of this as transit probably will look a little differently as we come out of this uh, COVID-19 crisis pandemic. Well, that's it for our headline news today. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you stay safe out there and now stay tuned for our Newsmaker interview with David Zipper and then a look at our book, The Future of Public Transportation with Christian Kent who uh, I worked with at WMATA and now has his own consulting firm and you can find him on the web. Take care and have, have a great weekend. All right, thanks for being with us on our Comforts Corner Transit Unplugged special look inside the transit industry and what's happening there. And today on our Newsmaker line is David Zipper, who's a visiting fellow with the Harvard uh, School of Government, uh, Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and uh, a fellow kind of mid-Atlantic guy with me here. So I'm, he's in D.C. today, and I'm talking to him from the Eastern Shore. Thanks for being with us, David. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
Yeah. So tell us a little about yourself. You're like a unique figure, I think, in the transit industry. One of the smartest guys I know. I've told you this before. The stuff that you put out, the content you put out is so cutting edge and, uh, and ahead of what everybody else is talking about. I'm always impressed uh, by the information you put out. And that's why I asked you to be a guest today. And thank you so much for, for being with us. Tell us a little about yourself. Oh, sure. Well, thanks. That's, that's very kind of you, Paul. Um, I, you know, I, came to, I come to the transit world a little bit late, maybe just a little bit of background to people. I actually really began my career first working in local government and economic development, actually, in the Bloomberg administration and in Washington, D.C., in the mayor's office, where I led economic development work there when ride hail emerged and, and bike share popped up here in D.C., okay. and then I was doing a lot of work with startups. Uh, so now, in the last few years, I've really dived into, into urban transportation, including public transit, but also looking at these new sort of shared mobility solutions like ride hail and bike share and scooters, because I just find it fascinating to look at how uh, th there's so many different types of technologies emerging that are changing how we can navigate cities. It's having a huge impact on public transportation, but it's also having a, a, a number of, of different impacts on, on cities themselves and how city government should be thinking about these issues. And uh, so I try to put those sort of, of experiences together into what I do. So yeah, I'm at Harvard and I also write a number of articles frequently and platforms like Wired and City Lab and Fast Company about the future of, of public transportation technology and urban mobility tech. And I have some, a few private advisory groups I work with on the public and private side too. So what do you think that, it's an amazing, and I, I, uh, like I said, I read a lot of what you put out and uh, it is really good stuff. So let's talk about some of that. I know you're sure. working on some stuff right now as well. Um, Tell us, I mean, just, let's just talk just generally. Just, I'm going to throw out a general question to you. What's going on with COVID-19 and what's the impact of it? Just give me you know, a brain dump of all the stuff you're thinking about. God, there's a lot and it's changing <laughs> really quickly. So hopefully this uh, podcast comes out in the next few days because otherwise I'll need to revise whatever it is that I'm going to yeah. say next. Um, but you know, I think that, that, I mean, I think even like two weeks ago, which feels like two years ago, um, everybody was in crisis management and city governments and in transit agencies alike. I wrote an article in City Lab about the movement to stop collecting fares and buses, which I think was appropriate then. Um, it's still it's still ongoing now. But now I'm thinking, I think a lot of people are thinking about what all this is going to mean going forward. And as we as the lockdowns are gradually lifted and people start moving a bit more again, what's going to happen? And for me, I, I, look, I like to look abroad for lessons that can be applied in the United States, particularly in a situation like this one, where you know China had the virus months before we did. And it's worrisome when you look over there and you see that, that as of mid-March, um, you know, auto traffic at rush hour was back to 96% of normal in Chinese cities, but public transportation was just over 50% of normal ridership in the morning rush hour. And I, I, it's sort of understandable because people are a little bit nervous about, uh, about the, their health on, in crowded spaces. So when I think, uh, what I'm thinking a lot about is, is what's going to happen to public transit with, with ridership as we come back out of this? What can transit agencies do, both operationally and from a marketing perspective, uh, from a policy perspective, to help those riders come back sooner once they, we want them to come back, once it's safe, we get the green light from our healthcare workers, and I'm also thinking about what is going to happen to 
those other modes of transportation that are either substitutes or complements to public transit. That could be scooters, which I wrote about just last week in City Lab, what's happened with them. It could be bikes. It could be, frankly, cars, which are the, the big sort of, I would argue, enemy of public transportation, but also shared mobility modes. So we can go into any of those that you like, Paul. You tell yeah. me. <laughs> okay, good. Well, this will be aired on this Friday, uh, the okay. 24th, and it'll be our weekend edition. So folks will listen to it all weekend, and you're being heard, uh, you'll be heard in 99 countries as our listeners are nice. all over the world. Yeah. So um, uh, let's talk about um, recovery. I like that. I mean, uh, APTA yeah. just recently announced the recovery committee uh, on our, our buddy uh, right there in Washington, D.C., Paul Wiedefeld is co-chair with uh, LA Metro's Phil Washington of a group that's going to be talking about recovery. And you and I were talking uh, in the green room, so to speak, just before this about the potential recovery for commuter services. And I'd like to dive into that a little bit because you and I share a similar concern. And tell us what that concern is. Sure. This is something I've been looking at. I'm actually looking at writing a piece about this as well. Um, you know, commuter rail passengers are a little different from other types of, of transit passengers, they're gonna have higher incomes. Um, they're going to be more likely to be working in um, quote and service jobs or white collar jobs, if you will. Uh, and of course, they're also more likely to be traveling from where they live into a central city in the morning and then back out again in the evening. Right. For all of these reasons, um, I think COVID is particularly dangerous for, for commuter rails having a particularly sharp acute impact on it and it will take a while to come back. If you look at, at ridership across modes in the United States, ridership is of course down across the board. People just aren't traveling. Um, but it's down particularly highly for commuter rail, upwards of 97% in some markets, like in Pace in Chicago, where the CEO said, uh, CEO of Pace in, in suburban Chicago said, you know, a lot of these passengers probably aren't going to come back. And and I think that, that I think that may be a little bit too negative, but I think there's some real reasons to worry about um, this, the rate at which that ridership will return for commuter rail. Partly it is that by definition, if, if the riders are a little bit more affluent, they, they're gonna be more, they're gonna be more able to drive if they want to or purchase a car if they so choose in the future, as opposed to more lower income uh, transit riders. And, um, and then on, on top of that too, you're going to see you know, if, if, if commuter rail riders are more likely to be in more highly skilled service jobs, um, it's going to be a little easier for them to work remotely if they want to. And they may not work remotely five days a week, but if it's right. two days a week, that's still going to take a big bite out of ridership. So to me, it becomes pretty interesting thinking about um, what commuter rail leaders can do to try to win back those riders because they might have to fight a little bit harder to do so. Than other uh, than, than leaders in other parts of the public transit community. I just uh, shared on my LinkedIn page today an interesting thing I saw online. One of these seat manufacturers uh, for airline industry has come up with an idea of having the middle of three seats turned around with shields up uh, going forward uh, as an as a way to you know change seating configuration. And I think something like that could work on commuter trains. A lot of the commuter trains are sitting idle right now. Uh, you know, I talked to Kevin, uh -huh. Green, my successor at MTA, who runs Mark Train in the DC. And like you said, 95, 97% down. I just wonder about different things like that that we could do to make people feel a little safer, you know? Well, I think, I think well, configuration is possible. I think it's, it's reconfiguration takes time and money to do for yes. one thing. 
Um, but I, I think that 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 uh, what, one possibility that I see is that you know commuter rail is going to have. I mean, you know this if you've worked with MTA in Maryland. Um, commuter rail, you've got relatively fewer uh, pla places to enter the train, the, the vehicle, than say a bus right. service. Right. So with a given number of stations in commuter rail, to me it becomes relatively easier to do something that Taipei is doing right now, which is to set up uh, uh, thermal cameras mm. to just sort of keep an eye on people that are that are moving up to the state to the station platform. And if people have a fever, if they're elevated in terms of temperature, they can't board. And there's, I think there's a couple good things that happen out of that. One is that there's some at least anecdotal evidence thus far that I've seen that those who have fevers are more symptomatic of COVID and other diseases as well. So by, keep prevent, by keeping them from riding, you're enhancing the, 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 the safety of, of other passengers. But there's also a little bit of a potential positive theater element. Um, if you think about how uh, there's, there's an argument that TSA in airports, what they really do is make you feel comfortable uh, going to board that plane more than actually capture lots of guns of people who would do bad things on a plane. It's really a bit of security theater that makes people feel comfortable and allows airlines to be able to operate and continue to attract customers. And I wonder if there's a possibility with commuter rail in particular of doing things like that that are very visible uh, that can enhance safety of passengers, but also just help people feel comfortable, okay. which is going to be so important for people who have the means to travel in other ways to go back to, to public transportation. What about, uh, what about um, ultraviolet light or ultraviolet rays and the possibility of killing germs? Have you, yep. have you done any studies on that or looked at them? Yeah, UV3, I believe is what it's called. Okay. That's, been real pretty, that's been used, I believe, first in China. I know it's been used there. Um, as a way of, of uh, disinfecting buses and potentially trains in a lot faster way and cheaper than actually having people scrub it. Yeah. Um, it is interesting uh, because there's, there's evidence that, that at least other kinds of coronaviruses are killed by this sort of light. Uh, I think a question for, for me, though, is, is how applicable it can truly be to the commuter rail or just public transit experience. Because if you just think about it, let's say that you disinfect through UV three in 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 you know in the in the middle of the night before um, a train is going to be in operation. Right. Okay, it's clean then. But as soon as it it gets to the first station where it picks up passengers, if somebody actually is sick there, it's no longer clean. Yeah. <laughs> you know what true. I mean? You can't right. disinfect it after every single person boards. So. I guess I'm yeah. still trying to understand the applicability of UV3 to the transit experience. But what about, uh, so I just read this morning, uh, the CEO of Ford Motor Company said that, you know, they could possibly have this antibacterial seating, you know, material for the seats. Have you done any looks into that? I wonder if that's something we could do on the seats of public transit. Or I've seen about antibacterial, antimicrobial, like uh, stanchions on buses and things like that before, where there's a coating you can put on them. Any thoughts on that? Uh, it's not something I've looked into. I guess what I would worry about is we're talking about a virus, not a bacteria. So right. I'm not sure what, what antibacterial techniques would, would do with regards to coronavirus specifically. But I think those are, I mean, here's what I think. I think, you know, we don't know yet which techniques are going to prove most effective and also just be most helpful in helping people feel comfortable. Yes. So my, that's why I think it's really important that groups like APTA keep a good record of what transit agencies are trying and so that we can collect that information, see what's working and not, 
and then frankly rely on, on folks like you and podcasts like this one to disseminate the most effective solutions so that we so that what is working can disseminate as quickly as possible yeah let's uh let's switch topics a little bit you and i both have written a lot about mobility as a service yes and, you know and what's going to happen and you know I, as you know i just came out with a book on march 1st about the future of public transportation like two weeks before this went wild and i went wide and uh i still think a lot of what's in the book most of it actually is future proof because I think people are still going to, you know, like autonomous vehicles now will probably become more important than ever. Uh, like Nat Ford is showing down in Jacksonville, uh, transporting, you know, swab tests. But what are your thoughts on the future of like shared mobility and, and mobility as a service, those kind of things? Cause that's kind of a, one of your areas of expertise. Yeah. I've done a lot of work in mobility as a service or Moss. Um, and it's, I think it's fascinating. I think it's, it's uh, important, and I've written, I actually, I think I was the first person to use the term walled garden in reference sure. to uh, Uber and Lyft building platforms uh, to, that, that allow them through their app to sell transit tickets as well as other types of mobility services. Uh, so, but I have to say, I, I, Paul, I've gone through a little bit of a, um, of, a, uh, a, of a transition of my own thinking on this topic. Okay. And I wrote an article uh, in City Lab a few months ago that reflects it, where the title was, uh, there's no app to get us out of our cars. And the reason why I, I wrote that, and I think the scenario I sort of started with was to say, look, just think rationally. Like, like if you have, if you want to think of a friend who drives every day to work and back, who could otherwise travel in other means, what's the best way of getting her not to drive? Is it A, bringing all of her, her transportation options into an app that's seamless? Is it B, offering public transit uh, with, with three times the frequency at the same, and reliability at the same price, so she's only waiting every three minutes for, right. for a train or a bus? Or is it C, offering uh, protected, safe bike lanes between where she lives and where she works? Which of these is more likely to be able to get, actually get her to not drive herself? I've heard people answer tripling transit frequency. I've heard people answer protected bike lanes. I've never heard anyone say the thing I need is more than anything else is, is bringing all my options into one platform. Because the fact of the matter is if you have tra transit service that runs once an hour and you have uh, one uh, bike share and scooter provider that forces you to ride on a street alongside vehicles, cars traveling 45, 50 miles an hour, those options stink. <laughs> and getting them together into a combined mobility as a service app is still not great. So my attitude is if we really, and I do want multimodal travel to succeed. I want people to not have to drive. I think though we have to make sure that the options within the Amas uh, portfolio are strong. So building protected bike lanes, build, making sure sidewalks are strong and improving transit service. Those to me are actually the fundamental building blocks of a successful MOS deployment. That's good. So it's more than just the app. It's the infrastructure that allows the app to be successful. Totally. I think this is the technologists behind MOS don't always like me saying this, but I truly believe Moss can't succeed unless the underlying services are strong and the infrastructure lets people travel safely. That's interesting. All right, so let's close out with one final question then, uh, and that is just a forward-facing question. Any thoughts or ideas for those listening in the public transit industry about ways to recover? 
I'll offer one thought. Uh, so I, 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 yeah, I'm going to just offer one thought because I, I think there's, there's so much we're still learning and it's so early still. I want to be careful not to overstate the yeah. level of knowledge that we all have. But I, I just want to plant an idea because I, in my experience, transit people are so committed, but sometimes can be a little bit unaware of what's happening, other forms of mobility around public transportation. And one trend that I find very exciting, which of the last month, has been a huge jump in the number of bike sales. Lots sure. of people are buying bikes, often cheap bikes, that sure. are sort of starter bikes. And who knows if people are gonna keep biking when the lockdown ends, but they might. And I actually would, would maintain that that could be a relative win for public transportation, partly because uh, if, if people feel like they don't necessarily need to drive, that's inherently good because cars take up so much space and slow down bus trips and so forth and so on. But I also wonder if down the road, if people do end up biking more, which seems plausible, or maybe using e-bikes more, are there ways in which uh, transit agencies can do something that I think is long overdue, which is building physical infrastructure near, uh, near train stations so that people can lock up their bikes securely and then board the train. That's sort of like a first mile, last mile option. Uh, you see lots of, of anecdotal evidence of bikes getting stolen when they're parked outside an LA metro station or something like that. And it's something that other countries, especially in Europe, have done much, much, much better of creating secure locking areas for micromobility devices, bikes and scooters and the like. So I, I see this as actually an opportunity for transit down the road that if people do continue to bike and use their own personal devices uh, in a way that seems possible, maybe that actually could be a way of capitalizing on a whole new group of riders that haven't previously felt comfortable using transit, especially train service. Very good. That's excellent. How can people follow more of what you have to say? I know that you do a lot of writing or what's the best way to kind of follow you or stay in contact with you? Yeah, sure. And if people have thoughts or, or comments, I'm always interested to hear from folks. Probably the easiest thing I try to, I'm like medium active on Twitter, I would say. Okay. <laughs> uh, but that's at David Zipper. Uh, it's pretty easy. Um, and I also try to post some things that are a little bit drier on LinkedIn uh, as well. I'm easy to find there. Just Google David Zipper LinkedIn. It'll pop right up. But the Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, David. Again, one of the brightest minds in our industry. And I love the fact that you bring an economic development background to it because I feel similarly. I mean, uh, and this COVID crisis has proven to me more than ever that public transit is a key part of our economic. Absolutely. And these, these folks that are riding the vehicles, you know, uh, I, I, my, my favorite little analogy now is, you know, the wheels in the bus go round and round, right? I've got six kids. And so we used to read that and sing that song. But the wheels in the bus also make the wheels of our economy turn round and round. And the essential workers in our economy are the ones that are riding now more than ever, right? That's completely right. And, you know, when people, I, I see these articles that I find frustrating sometimes saying, oh, this is the death knell of public transportation. No, no it's not. If that's the case, it's the death knell of our cities. Because I challenge, I, I would, I, people say, you know, oh, no one's going to be comfortable riding BART and, uh, and Caltrain in the Bay Area. I'm like, just imagine 450,000 people who ride BART every day suddenly trying to drive across the Bay Bridge. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. So we need public transportation to come back because we need our cities to come back and we need our economy to come back. Very good. Thank you. Thank you.
I'm Christian Kent, and this is the future of paratransit. For nearly 30 years, we have been providing ADA complimentary paratransit service to ensure equal access to public transit for our customers with disabilities. Many of the parameters of this federally mandated service are reflective of the technology and operating methods that were available at the time the ADA was enacted. Thirty years later, we are still attempting to schedule service the day before travel, even though we know that our productivity will evaporate overnight. And as more systems adhere to the required minimum service area of a three-quarter mile corridor around the fixed route system, what happens to people who live in communities with limited or no fixed route service? And about fixed route service? Will we be expanding these systems to correspond to urban sprawl, even if the distribution of ridership is not conducive for doing so? Who had the vision in 1990 that 30 years later, the industry as a whole would be fighting to retain fixed route ridership or that the gains in paratransit ridership would become unsustainable. Much has been said recently about public transit agencies reimagining their roles in the industry and transitioning from service providers to mobility integrators. What exactly does this mean? Simply put, the transit agency must recognize that it may no longer be the principal provider of transit services in a region but it can still be the central coordinating arm of a larger ecosystem of providers. This concept makes some people uneasy because they believe it portends an end to public transit as we know it. I do not subscribe to this point of view, and I was pleased to hear that a fellow transit luminary emphasized this point at a recent industry conference. Chicago Transit Authority's CEO, Dorval Carter, was asked to address the trajectory of transit in the face of ridership and funding challenges. Carter responded that our industry has been and will continue to be the best provider of mass transit, and the growth of our nation's cities will have an ongoing need for us. The decision before us is what role will we play for the smaller, more individualized trips that do not require the capacity provided by traditional public transit. In those areas, there will be more players, and we would do well to integrate those services into a larger set of options for the riding public. I couldn't agree more. The truth is that models for both fixed route and paratransit are no longer viable, and their futures are inextricably woven together in a single vision. Fortification of accessible fixed route service for the masses and the development of on-demand services everywhere else. Operating in tandem, this is a new transportation ecosystem called integrated mobility. Public transit agencies looking to manage the rising costs of ADA paratransit have initiated numerous pilot programs across the country in partnership with taxi operators and transportation network companies to create on-demand services that run parallel to their ADA paratransit service, but at a substantially lower cost. But the pilot programs quickly fill to capacity because the demand still outpaces the supply of vehicles and drivers 
that public transit agencies can offer. They are still attempting to shoulder the cost of all the paratransit demand in their region without decentralizing their control and sharing the responsibility with the broad array of small operators that are available and equipped with wheelchair accessible vehicles and other funding streams for which these same customers are eligible. With this approach, over time the growth of paratransit service will slow and if managed properly could even decline as customers select more convenient options. The future of ADA paratransit as we know it is its own death and reincarnation back into the complementary service that it was always intended to be. It will become an unremarkable option against the backdrop of a system of accessible services that will allow people with disabilities to travel along with their able-bodied brethren without delay and without nearly as many accommodations because the system simply will not need them.